0: I'd rather spend money this way than to lose them in casino, prostitutes or stupid yachts. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say. Yo! Welcome to episode 125 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a Semi-Pro Cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking casinos, prostitutes, and yachts. Hey there, Semi-Pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash innovation. And yes, we are starting today with a review from Australia, Five stars, GP Llama, a must-subscribe cycling podcast for any cyclist who pins a number on or who just wants to learn about what it takes to compete. Great work, Damien. Thank you, GP Llama. I really appreciate you taking the time out to write that review. And if you do like the show, I would love a review on either iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me want to... Let's get cracking with the performance probes this week. And number one, the road to gold training and peaking characteristics in the year prior to a gold medal endurance performance. This study was set up to describe training variations across the annual cycle in Olympic and world champion endurance athletes and determine whether these activities used tapering strategies in line with recommendations in the literature. Eleven elite cross-country skiers and biathletes athletes reported one year of Day to day training leading up to the most successful competition of their career. Training data were divided into periodization and peaking phases and distributed into training forms, intensity zones, and endurance activity forms. Athletes trained 800 hours, 500 sessions a year in Year 1, including approximately 800 hours in Year 1 of specific sport training. 94% of all training was executed as aerobic endurance training. Of this, approximately 90% was low-intensity training and 10% high-intensity training. 23% of training sessions were characterized as hit, with primary portions executed at or above the first lactate turn point. Training volume and specificity distribution conformed to a traditional periodization model, but absolute volume of HIT remained stable across phases. However... HIT training patterns tended to become more polarized in the competition phase and training volume frequency and intensity remained unchanged from pre-peaking to peaking period but there was a 32% plus or minus 15% volume reduction from the preparation period to the peaking phase. So what were the conclusions of looking at all of this data from these athletes? The annual training data for these Olympic and world champion cross-country skiers and biathletes conforms to previously reported training patterns of elite endurance athletes. During the competition phase, training became more specific, with 92% performed as cross-country skiing. However, they did not follow suggested tapering practice derived from short-term experimental studies. Only 3 out of the 11 athletes took a rest day during the 5 final days prior to their most successful competition that's the point that i find super interesting about this study this must be from practical experiences that the coaches and athletes aren't dropping fitness coming into major events. They may have done a pre-taper, which is reducing the load, say, four weeks out from competition, but maintain intensity at even a high percent of volume going into competition. The percentage drop in volume was smaller than the recommended 50% volume at 32%, plus or minus 15%. So some riders potentially only reduce volume by 18%, but maintain frequency and intensity. Definitely something to think about when you are planning your tapering, or maybe it's just more information to confuse you even more. The second probe is a podcast interview with Jonathan Vorders. It's called On-Road and Off-Road Innovation. It's on Sports Coach Radio by Glenn Whitney. This is a superb interview with the Cannondale Garmin Boss Glenn describes this interview accurately when he says, "...this is a free-flowing and wide-ranging interview covering everything from the athlete-to-coach transition, the complexities of managing a team that operates simultaneously on several continents, to talent identification and more." Glenn has a really nice way of raising issues that don't put Vorders off answering them honestly and without reservation. It's a really refreshing look inside Vorders and his operation where he talks at length about his management and leadership philosophy, but also at the innovative way he approaches racing and how he looks and finds opportunities for his team to win on and off the bike. And if I was a team owner or manager, I would definitely take note of this one, but also it is a life lesson from a couple of really smart dudes. (music) Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts today and the best innovation tech of 2014. I thought to get things rolling into 2015, it would be cool to look a little deeper into 2014 and a cycling news reader poll by James. Huang. This reader poll produced a top 10 of innovations from the year, and because we are such a tech-orientated bunch here at SemiPro, I thought I'd run through them. Also, though, while I was going through them, there were a couple that I didn't immediately recognize, and I wanted to delve into a little deeper. So, here they are, the results of the tech innovation of the year, starting with number 10, Full Suspension Fat Bikes. I'm not going to really hang around this one for too long but it has been crazy to watch fat bikes take off over the past couple years and this is just another step in their evolution. It seems there are a ton of companies that do not want to miss out on this trend and have jumped on taking fat bikes to the next level. The question that I asked myself when I first read this was why? Why do we need full suspension fat bikes? I've never even ridden a hardtail or a rigid fat bike, let alone throwing front forks and now rear suspension on them. Aren't the tires big enough? I guess it's a specific bike for a specific type of rider and that probably isn't me. But anyway, it seems that they are getting a bit of love from the tech community of cycling news, so who can argue with that? and really that's all I'm gonna say about it. Number nine is the Canyon MRSC magnetic suspension system. If you saw the sexy bike that they rolled out at Eurobike in 2014 you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Well you would know what it looks like. It's a machine that is beyond what's available at the moment and the major component here is their active suspension system. The basis of this suspension system is newly developed bearings in the fork legs which pivot to provide a rotary dampening effect and the key to this lies in the magneto rheological fluid construction. That means absolutely nothing to me, but it is basically metal particles that are suspended in a fluid which then become polarized when subjected to a magnetic field. The effect changes the viscosity of the fluid, rendering it solid and the pivot fixed. So the sensors around the bike pick up riding style and road conditions and then instantly relay signals to the MR bearings that alter the dampening performance. So the entire system switches automatically between open and closed to either provide shock absorption or maximum stiffness. All the rider has to do is concentrate on their own performance. And this is something that I would not have thought of, especially the way carbon can be layered these days to create varying degrees of flex and stiffness, but adding this technology to a road bike does make perfect sense. Considering the huge array of conditions road bikes are now subjected to by their owners, gravel, off-road, crazy Rouge Roubaix races, the conditions of all of these types of riding are now super demanding and they are super rough surfaces. You would have to think it's this weird evolution where probably road races were done in really crappy dirt roads back in the day. They've come through and anyone has been to a Grand Tour will see that they do the roads perfectly before they get there. But... Now, I guess, we're all going back. We're trying to do gravel. We're trying to do Strada Bianchi. We're trying to do all these different rides in different conditions, and this is the bike for this. So, right now, the only thing that's available is, well, the soon-to-be-available Specialized has a rumored road fork, like the CGR, which is the funky looking seat post that they developed. There's a resilient member between two supporting arms, allowing the arms to flex under controlled conditions, which if you thought their chain stays were gnarly and the seat post was gnarly, wait till you see these forks. But this is digressing because, in my mind, Canyon is currently the leader in innovative suspension for road bikes, and nothing can take that away from them just yet. I would love to see this technology available because if one rider had this technology in a race like Roubaix, it would be game-changing because I do believe that the other competitors would suffer. Number 8, the Focus RAT Quick Release Through Axle System. Anyone that's ridden through axles will probably agree with me that they are the absolute boss until it comes to fixing a flat in a hurry or even getting your wheel back in. So focus has gone a long way out to help not only this problem but it could also help disc brakes become welcomed into the pro road pillow because I'm not sure you've even thought about race changes or how much time would be lost by having the standard through axles on a road bike. Focus has launched a new post mount disc brake equipped full carbon cyclocross rig with these fast action through axles front and rear. RAT stands for Rapid Axle Technology and it's a Focus developed and branded axle that has a T head shaped pin that slides into a slot and then is turned 90 degrees to lock it in place. And this requires far less time and effort than the standard threaded axles found on most mountain bikes, which like I said before, are a real pain in the ass to get on sometimes. So this would definitely allow team mechanics to do quick changes of wheels in the road pillow. Because unlike a regular through axle on a mountain bike which has to be threaded into the dropout and then clamped shut, the rat through axle uses a design that only requires a 90 degree rotation of the axle in the dropout before the lever is closed. The cool thing about this is it seems Focus is licensing this technology because there is a few manufacturers that have shown interest and there is the potential that we could see this technology appearing on a few bikes this year other than those in the Focus range. In this area of innovation, Colnago has been working with Manitou on Hexlock, which is a very similar through axle technology. It will be used in their new V1R Aero road bike, but that's not quite ready yet, so we are yet to see a wide-scale uptake of this type. Of technology, I am a big supporter of through axles on road bikes. It's not overkill to me because if it allows discs on roadies, which I am also a supporter of, then I am all for it. So number six, Schwalbe Procore Tubeless Tire Systems. And I've stolen a couple of pros and cons from someone that's actually tested these things. The pros, amazing grip levels, whether cornering, braking, or climbing. More comfort from the supple outer chamber. They eliminate pinch flats and burping and can be used with any rim over 23mm and any tubeless ready tire. The tyre won't roll off in the event of a flat and it protects rims from dents. The cons, approximately an extra 200 grams per wheel weight for the system. It can still puncture if a rock slashes your tyre wall and also they're not cheap. So what are they? It's a mountain bike tyre system. The Procore system is a small volume tube inflated to a very high pressure that pushes the bead of the tyre against the sidewall of the rim and this is run in conjunction with a tubeless tyre and sealant on the outside of that so that the void outside of the Procore tube can be run at much lower pressures giving superb comfort traction and without the risk of pinch flats or burping the tyre under hard cornering. So, if the advantage is that the outer casing, the actual tyre can run low PSIs, how low are we actually talking? The Schwalbe guys themselves have set up a bike with a 60 PSI Procore, so that's the inner tube, and 17.5 PSI front and 19 PSI rear in the tyre. The pressure ranges they say can go from 55 to 85 where the tire itself can run as low as 14 PSI so that is going to give you a metric shit ton of extra grip and benefits from the tire. I was running 30 psi on a a 2.2 inch tire recently and it was a dream. So, I can only imagine that it just keeps getting better the lower you go. So, as far as the technology itself, it's sold as a kit with two Procore tubes, valves and possible rim tape, tire levers and sealant and is just becoming available now. You can use it with any rim over 23mm. It does have two valves because it has two tubes though. You have to run them at opposite ends which will mean that you'll probably be drilling into a hole. If you have carbon rims that becomes super duper sketchy. I don't know how you can get around that but I'm sure aluminium rims are a little safer to do the drilling but definitely whichever case you have to be careful with what you're doing. So the benefits of a bit of extra weight and this system as a whole has yet to be proven I think, in theory, it really works, and by the reviews that I have read, people are absolutely loving it. It really seems that its application is more for, say, downhill or enduro rather than cross country where a bit of extra tire pressure for Getting up the hills is probably more valuable than the stuff on the downhills, but then if there's traction and braking advantages there, maybe you could find a balance in between when you're running not so low tire pressures. Number seven, automatically adjusting safety lights. These won't really add any performance to your ride. They will probably just keep you alive and seeing well, although really this technology at the moment is being used for real lights only. There was a front light that had a Kickstarter campaign that didn't make it and it actually got brighter as you sped up using accelerometers. But there is two forms of real lights that are using new technology in order to be smarter lights. There is the Seasense and the Velodrome and the sense actually uses a combination of an accelerometer and a light sensor to monitor speed and light levels to provide more brightness in certain situations. The accelerometer can detect whether you are slowing down when you're approaching a junction or traffic lights or whatever and then it flashes brighter and faster so that any riders or cars or whatever can see that you're actually slowing down. and. Also, during the daytime, the light can be adjusted to sudden changes in light, such as when you go through a tunnel or under the shadow of trees, which is pretty cool technology to me, especially if you are mountain biking or you're riding down some crazy French Alp and all of a sudden you hit one of those super long tunnels. Both of these lights have both of these functionality, so they're just copying off each other. I think this technology is cool because there's no need for an on-off switch. It just happens. It goes on your bike and it gets used when it gets used and you don't need to even think about it. I know everybody's left their rear light on after they've got home and had to replace the battery the next time they've used it. Things like that are definitely a thing of the past when it comes to putting these new lights on your bike. Number five, halfway through advanced aluminum frames, and this would be the hydroforming and the change. It seems that aluminum is making a comeback because now the material, again, you're able to shape it and develop it a whole lot better than what it was 20 years ago when it was a good material, but it was super tough, and it was a harsh ride, and there wasn't much you could really do about it. It seems like companies like Trek and Cannondale and even maybe specialized a bit are leading the way here. They are still investing in aluminium frames and advances. I guess we should even add Giant to that list. I owned aluminium Giant not too long ago but overall it seems that it's the affordability plus the new technology. These two things combined means you can have a decent bike for not that much compared to its carbon cousin definitely one to keep an eye out on. I don't think we will lose the stigma of having a non-carbon bike as yet. People still believe carbon is the best performing material and aluminium is yet to re-enter the market and prove itself as a viable option. And I guess that won't happen until the pros are riding it or some crazy breakthrough happens where it is proven to be a better material overall. Number four, Bioshift automatic shifting. The Bioshift Automatic Bike Shifting System is a shifting system that completely autonomously controls the shifting for you. You just pedal and it just shifts. So the automated shifting of gears is based on complex rhythms found in the Bioshift by Baron Biosystems. So... The system itself has an end goal of automated shifting to increase efficiency and this automated shifting can increase efficiency if you're being lazy or distracted or you don't know what is the best gear to shift in. It is going to give you the optimum gear and that will lead to the optimum cadence which in theory leads to getting wattage increases due to the increased efficiency. Outside of that goal, we're talking about assisting an athlete with pacing whether it is in racing or training. Currently the system on a bike is it just gives you a readout of where you're sitting. It doesn't actually control anything, say like an ERG trainer would. But taking that to the road, it just seems unlimited in its potential because it would do all the work for you and all you would have to do is just concentrate on doing the workout itself. With this automated shifting it does everything for you. So either in a race or in training you can set specific wattage targets and the bike will automatically shift to maintain that wattage. You do need a power meter obviously because we're talking watts here, but the idea with this technology, it's not released yet but it would hopefully be moved into some existing hardware and then it just automatically becomes part of the bike computer that you would already be using on the bike and you don't need any additional parts or hardware to make the system work. The cool thing about it is that it has these following modes, fixed power and this is where I said like you just set a power target and you go out and ride and if you set it at a certain wattage it'll keep your gear optimized to hold that wattage but of course you are the one that's still doing the work. Another setting is max power and in this mode you can specify a maximum power value to not exceed When once it hits that value, the system will keep you in the gears and make it difficult to put out more power. This could be used for recovery rides so you don't go crazy when you're riding or it could be used to keep you at a certain power when you're sprinting or doing sprint training so that you can get used to these different power levels and increase them slowly and apply the overload principle. The third mode is fixed RPM and this is super obvious. This is when you set a specific cadence and it changes gear to ensure that you're actually just maintaining that cadence the entire time and fixed heart rate in this mode you put in a heart rate instead of a power and the system will combine the optimal efficiency to produce gearing that allows you to maintain a given heart rate zone. This technology is top three for me for sure because this is absolutely a power coach's wet dream. Imagine the granular detail that you could prescribe workouts and the control that you would have over a rider and what they can and cannot do without having to be there. That would be so beneficial for a coach and Whether they're riding next to the rider or they're across the other side of the world. Setting specific targets to train only a set percentage of FTP would be a great way of making sure the athlete is doing a prescribed workout correctly. And while this may sound like hell for some, it would be heaven for others. Number three is direct mount road breaks. It's the two bolts instead of one. This, to me, really does seem like a last-ditch effort to extend the life of rim brakes because maybe it was planned technology before anyone was taking disc brakes seriously, but nobody expected the quick uptake of disc brakes, so they've got to get this technology out. We are only talking a couple of manufacturers, well, three manufacturers, the main one being Shimano's Dura-Ace BR9010. I'm sure this development will definitely please traditionalists who want to see rim brakes around for longer. The advantages of direct mount brakes is that by mounting them on two bolts means that the pivots go directly to the frame, excess material in both frame and brake can be eliminated, it reduces weight. The entire brake sits closer to the frame and the whole setup is significantly stiffer. This improves both power and modulation by removing the flex From the system. Each arm is adjustable and the brake can never twist out of alignment once it's set up. It can't twist at all. And another big thing here is that it dramatically improves tire clearance because now that we are experiencing the evolution of the fatter road tire, it means that this gives a lot more clearance because they sit higher up on the frame or the fork. And this means that you could probably fit in a 27 or a 28 millimeter tire. Some people have said that they've seen 30 millimeter clinches on wide rims, but it does allow for so much more room to get these tires in, which will definitely help because it's on trend. They are being adapted quickly by, say, Trek or Fuji or other big brands that are lining up to use the new standard So, I think they're here to stay for a little while. We haven't seen any nod by the UCI for disc brakes just yet. So, these are an easy win for manufacturers to put an extra bolt or, you know, a little bit of extra room on their frames for these types of brakes and it is a win for all riders. So, you really can't complain about that and we can use them straight away in races without having to mess about and buy a bike that potentially can't be used in any UCI regulated races. Number two is 3D printing. The exciting stuff regarding 3D printing is the optimization of materials for me. I do see a time in the future when the distribution model for buying parts will be disrupted when every store or every home has their own printing capabilities. But for now, it's the design and the unique applications that are most promising. Printing titanium and making it lighter and more aero than ever before is a start in this area. But what about specific parts of road bikes or bikes in general that would benefit from the design and print treatment? Lugs, seats, grips. They're all starting to get a bit of a look in and for me it is really just Absolutely endless when you think of what could be done with design and 3D printing. And I think that this is the most rewarding part of 3D printing and the potential innovation that will come from it. I believe the technology is only just being uncovered, yet alone used for its full potential. So sit tight on this one. 2015 is going to be a big year in this space. And the number one tech innovation of 2014, inexpensive power meters. 2014, for me, was the year of the cheap power meter, and while we are still waiting for the sub-$500 ones to be released, they are well and truly on their way, and with it, lots of riders finding out how beneficial riding with power actually is, or will be, because It really is the ultimate training tool, and this opens up a whole new world for a whole bunch of riders that previously didn't have the cash or the permission to buy something over a thousand bucks, which may seem like it doesn't matter when it comes to training, but I'll tell you, so many riders I know get power and it just changes the way they ride. I am such a huge fan of power meters, and this is. Really exciting news for me. The real test now is, are they as good as they say they're going to be and reliable? So that is still a big question mark, but by it being number one, it tells me people are excited about this development. And I hope 2015 is the year that they prove themselves. There it is. That's a wrap-up of the 10 top-voted tech innovations for 2014. I really think we should keep an eye on a few of these because they're only going to be better and better. Some aren't released. Some are just proving themselves now because they've come at the end of 2014. So there'll be a lot of benefit to keeping an eye on some of these things and watching how they actually can be used in a real performance sense. Okay, let's get to the tech hacks and products section. And this week, the Shimano XDR Trail PD-M9020 pedals I've got to say, a name like that is worse than any literal performance study I've ever read because you don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, some of you might. It is the XDR mountain bike pedal, but the one that has a little extra width platform on it just in case you don't clip in when you're going a little crazy on the downhills. It's not really for unclipped riding though because there isn't any extra grip on there. It's more about the extra protection from bashing it into rocks and the occasional unclipped moment. I spent a good four weeks riding these pedals and dishing out a little bit of abuse. But I'm a huge fan of XDR SPD pedals anyway, but these only confirm it. So the use case for pedals like this definitely are bikes that are a little more relaxed. They're bikes that maybe you're not racing. You just want to get out, do some jumps, do some different technical stuff, test your skills a little bit more because they probably weigh more, and you don't really need that extra cage unless you're going to go out and bash them around. I remember at a national race years and years ago, I had pedals that were two-sided, but the back-end clip could actually be smashed down in the rocks, and I did hit some rocks, so effectively my pedal became one sided, which is a real pain in the ass for mountain bike pedals. And this eliminates that altogether. You could smash these things so hard that you'd still be able to clip in and finish your ride. And now, that quote from the top of the show it is, of course, Oleg Tinkov, the eccentric billionaire. How eccentric? Yeah, I eventually beat him like, yeah, I'm here. TCS Bank, $3 billion worth, Oleginkoff is the man, he is number one. I like the dude, he brings some flair to team ownership, even though he is a little crazy. If it was all Andy Reese and Bianna Reese, teams would be pretty damn boring. And that's it. You've been listening to the SemiPro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash innovation to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into.